In these verses, we see a glimpse of a world that no longer exists. It is a world that was green and good through and through when God originally created this world. There was an original goodness that was there. But as we look around and we look even in our lives, we realize something has happened. This world that was there from the beginning does not seem to be the world that we live in today. It is not whole. It is not it is good. Something has happened to our world, but we still have in our hearts this longing for this original goodness. So we're going to work through this, Genesis chapter 2, uh, 4 through 17, but we'll work through it in sections here. And we will start here in uh, verses 4 through 7. So, Joel, could you bring me the clicker there? Thanks, buddy. All right, let's read together. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. All right, let's stop there. Deal with this section now. And the main point that we see from this is that God formed Adam and gave him life. So you're like, well, I thought this already happened. We've been going through Genesis, and didn't we see in chapter 1, God created man, he created them male and female, in the image of God, he created them. Okay, we already saw this happen, and so some people look at this and say, well, what's going on? This seems to contradict what we've seen already. And also, there's no, uh, there's no plants? What's, what's going on? There's some people that interpret this and say, well, you see, that either the Bible's in error, or it's not meant to be taken anything even close to literal. Or they say what happened is that uh, this wasn't really written by Moses, but later on, uh, hundreds, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years later, maybe after the time of the Babylonian exile, uh, some people took these different legends and kind of cobbled them together. And so you have two different creation accounts, and they contradict each other, and they're just kind of mashed together here. Now, I would say we should disagree with that, and I disagree with that. I think actually what we're seeing here going on is a flashback to day six of creation when God created uh, man and woman. And specifically here we're going to see in this rest of this chapter the creation of Adam and Eve. The section starts with this phrase, these are the generations. This is a phrase that we're going to keep seeing in the book of Genesis. I believe it's 11 times. And it lets us know that this is a, a, a new, it's kind of a section heading. So it's going to be dealing here with the creation of Adam and Eve. And notice it says the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day the Lord God made, now it says the earth and the heavens. So the focus here is going to be on, specifically on the earth and specifically the creation of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden that we're going to be talking about. So this isn't a contradiction. Uh, what God had Moses do was in Genesis 1 and 
through chapter 2, verse 3, which really, that's where Genesis 1 should have ended. Remember, the chapter divisions were added uh, quite a bit later on, and these are a man-made thing, and really, Genesis 1 should have gone all the way through day 7 with the day of rest. And now it's going back and saying, okay, now we're going to do a flashback and we're going to zoom in on day six and look at that more in depth. It wouldn't have made as much sense in the whole flow of things uh, to have this huge amount for day six and then day seven. So it's, it's a flashback. That's what's going on here. So in verse five, it says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And say, so, well, what is that talking about? And to make a kind of long story short, I think the best way to understand this is it's not talking about all plant life uh, across the whole globe because plant life was created on the third day of creation. We saw that from Genesis chapter 1. So I think this is either having to deal with uh, plant life that's in Eden or in the garden and or different types of plants that need someone to cultivate them. You know, different kind of crops that you need, you need a worker, you need a, a farmer, a gardener, someone to tend to them. And I think that last part is probably really what this is referring to. That for his reasons, God held off on um, at least having those types of crops at least spring forth and grow until, you know, Adam could be there to, uh, to tend to them. So I don't think this is a flashback back to the kind of original um, beginning of creation when the earth was formless and void. Some people interpret it that way, but I don't think that makes sense. And it says here, uh, the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. So that's part of the reason that's given why uh, these types of plants hadn't sprung up yet. And then verse six, it says, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. This again, this is one of these things that we encounter in this passage where we say, well, this is different. This is different than the way things are now. I want to say, as we keep looking through this section, I think this is one of the things that we're supposed to notice and to say the world was different at this time, that it wasn't uh, water that was produced uh, through, through rain at this point, uh, but that there was, um, well, the translation here says a mist was going up from the land. Now, I'm reading in the English Standard Version, and it also has a little note that says, or spring. And I think uh, probably spring is the best way to understand this, that there were some type of subterranean waters and that um, water was coming up through these springs and either, you know, kind of flowing out or maybe sometimes even really springing out. I don't know, maybe that's uh, some combination. But I read this, and what I see and I looked at a lot of different commentaries and they have different views. But when I look at this, I think, wow, God had designed uh, the world here with a built-in sprinkler system. That this was a good deal to think that uh, you didn't even need to wait for these torrential downpours of rain that may come or may not. And remember, if Moses is uh, writing this down from the inspiration of uh, the Lord, you know, the original, the first audience, they are in the desert as they're reading this. They're in the wilderness where uh, having water is not a, a common thing. And they're seeing a lot that is not green and good. And so to think, wow, there's a land where just it's built-in sprinkler systems. Uh, this is a, be a beautiful thing. So that's the situation. At least something like this is going on. 
And then it says, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So this is another uh, description of the same event of the creation of the first man. So God creates this man, Adam, and it says he created him from the dust of the ground, which if we're reading this in Hebrew, we see that there's a little kind of play on words that's going on here. God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, and the word for ground is Adama. So he formed Adam from the Adama. And actually in this whole section, we see he talks about the ground several times. It's the word Adama, which is really close to Adam. So the man that was formed from the, the ground. And it says he was formed. That's the same word that is used sometimes as a, a potter, uh, fashioning something out of clay. So this is God having an active hand in this, in the creation of man. Again, we see nothing in here that hints at evolution. We see everything that would contradict this from being evolution. God does not take some early hominid and uh, put his spirit into this hominid. Uh, he is creating Adam fresh from the material that he had created on the ground. We also see here that he created him from dust. And we talk about man is uh, created from, sometimes at funerals we say from dust to dust. I'm going to argue Adam was created from dust, but originally not created to return to the dust. That's what happens later on because of what happens when sin enters this world. But God remembers what we're created from. He knows what you were created from. And he knows the limitations in all of that because of that. In the book of Psalms, 103, 13 and 14, it says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Okay, so God, he's like a father, he shows compassion. To who? To those who fear him, those who have a respect to him, like a loving father. But then it goes on, and it gives a reason for it. Verse 14, For he knows our frame, okay, what we're made of, what we're constructed of. He remembers that we are dust. God knows your competition. He knows that composition. He, <clears throat> he knows that you are not made of steel or adamantium. Or He, he knows our limitations. He knows that there is, uh, there's, there's glory in us because he created us. But there's also a, some, a fragile element to us. There's limitations to us. We are created by God, but we are not God created from the things of this world, and God remembers that and has compassion on us because of this. But we're not just dust. We're not just material beings. And if you believed in the accounts that are given from uh, you know, evolution or atheists, you'd have to believe that you really are nothing uh, but atoms that are bumping together. Atoms and some kind of physical energy, and that's all we are. And if that's true, there's really not a whole lot that separates you from animals or even from the rocks. You're just more complicated. You're more highly organized, and that's it. But I think we know deep down that there is something more to us. I mean, we're self-aware. We, I think, just realize that we are not just a bunch of atoms bumping together. And therefore, we know that when we uh, communicate with other people, we're not just talking to uh, 
something that would be akin to an advanced robot. You know, you and I, we're not, we're not just squishy robots. We're not just physical things. Uh, because we see also here that God interjected, in order for Adam to be a living creature, God had to do something else. And it says here that um, he formed him from the ground. Okay, so you have the, the body here. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So it's when God did that, and he breathed this breath into him, that Adam now became alive. And so I think what we see from this is, yeah, we are dust. We are, there's a physical component to us, and there's nothing wrong with that. We need to not think, though, the physical is evil. It's, it's not, but that we're more than just that. God has, has breathed his life into us. We have an immaterial part of us as well. And I think this doesn't mean uh, primarily or necessarily at all that God breathed like physical air into him. I mean, we can't think of like God like doing like mouth to mouth on Adam. Uh, I think there's something kind of metaphorical about this, but God somehow interjecting his life into Adam so that he came alive, interjecting life into him. So giving him a spirit, giving him the immaterial part of his being. And so we are made of dust, but we are, we are not just that. There's more to us than just this. And this is why we are, we are conscious of ourselves. We have this immaterial part as well. Human beings are both matter and spirit. We're both material, physical, and there's something that is spiritual or immaterial to us as well. And so sometimes this gets referred to as a pneumosomatic unity. But this is how we're meant to be, uh, both physical and spiritual, which means not only is it untrue for you to think of yourself as just a physical thing, just a bunch of atoms that are connected to each other, but it's also wrong for us to think about ourselves as the spiritual is, that's just the real you, and the physical is not the real you. The original creation of humanity and what we're supposed to be is both body and spirit together, connected. And there is something wrong if that gets split apart. We're going to see that's what death is. When these two parts that are supposed to be together uh, do get split apart and fractured uh, because of sin. And that's what death is. The wages of sin is death. And therefore it is the, the splitting apart. And so when you have a Christian that passes away, it is... Uh, we know that the body goes into the ground, that is true, and the immaterial part for a Christian goes to be with the Lord. But that's also, in a sense, uh, in the, that your loved one is being comforted and it's a joyous thing to be in the presence of the Lord, but it's also not the way it's intended to be. And that's why we also look forward to the resurrection, the day that is to come, where God puts you back together, the physical and the spiritual, and makes us whole again. And that is the way things are meant to be. So we have a lot of comfort right now with our departed loved ones, uh, that they're with Jesus, it is good, but there is more good yet to come when everything is made whole again. I think another area of application for this as well is that if you are both physical and spiritual, if that's who you are, and God is giving you your life as a stewardship, then you need to care for and think about both parts of your life. There is the physical part. And sometimes, some of us, we neglect the physical. 
and we think, well, you know, I just, I need to do spiritual things, and I need to, uh, there's things I need to focus on, but you know what? If we, if you never exercise, if we never sleep, if all you're eating is, you know, boxes of Twinkies, that is going to have an effect on you, and we're not taking care of this, this physical body that God intends for us to have. Now, on the other side, some people, it's all about the physical, and they can tell you, you know, their exercise routines and what they eat and what they don't eat, but they let the immaterial part of them uh, completely go to waste. They don't focus on their soul, their, their spirit, the immaterial part, and the relationship with God that we have through that. And so we need to be working on that part as well, too, our, our thought life, our inner life, our relationship with the Lord. And all, both of these things are important. God created you as with both of these, and God wants you to take care of both of those. And they, you, it, they're so connected, they have play on each other. You know, if you spiritually let yourself go, that is going to have an effect on your physical body. You know, our spiritual life, our, our thought life, our mental life uh, has psychosomatic effects. We can make ourselves physically ill. We can, or through our choices, bring damage to ourselves. You know, and the other way around, there is something to be said for, again, rest, exercise, you know, eating well, and you are probably going to feel better. And it's probably going to be easier for you to spend time with the Lord and do the things that God has called you to do. So take care of yourself in both ways because this is what God made us for. I mentioned before that death is a separation of the two, but it's not how it's meant to be. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, it says of this, talking about death, it says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. So at death, you have this, this splitting again. And the physical part, yeah, it goes into the ground and eventually is going to turn to dust until the resurrection, and the spirit goes to the Lord. Uh, but it's that unnatural separation until the resurrection takes place. And before we move on again, uh, I want to point out something because I've, I've heard uh, this said. I've seen articles on it. Maybe you have too. There's been a lot this past year about abortion that's been in the news, obviously. And one argument that I've seen uh, from people that are pro-abortion is they say, well, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, it says here that Adam didn't become a human being until he took his first breath. And they say what the Bible actually teaches is that it's not until uh, a human being takes their first breath that they actually become a living being. And therefore, abortion is okay because they haven't taken a breath yet. I don't know if any of you heard that argument. Maybe you see it. That's, it's one that's out there. So I want to reply to that and say no. Uh, human life does not begin at first breath. This was uh, in Genesis 2 here that we just read. This was when Adam became alive. Okay, but this doesn't mean that this is how it works for everyone after him. Because the normal way that the rest of us come into existence uh, is in our mother's womb. And it is not when the Lord forms you anew from the ground and breathes life into you. Adam was created differently than every one of us that came after him. And even Eve, we're going to see, is created a little bit differently because there's not another woman to give birth to her. And God is, wants to show that Adam and Eve are connected. But since then, we all come from uh, a woman and our life begins uh, 
at conception in the womb, not when we take our first breath. That's not what this passage is teaching. You have to read thoughts into it to claim that it means that. And also, I think it wasn't at least just physical air that God was breathing into him. This was God imparting uh, spirit or life to him. Uh, This wasn't about Adam taking his first breath. In fact, Adam breathed because he was made alive. It wasn't that he was made alive because he breathed. And also really think about it too. Are you really going to argue that a baby, if it's born, oftentimes the baby doesn't breathe right away and the doctor has to give it a little uh, spank on the bottom and then it, to make it cry so it starts breathing. Would you really argue if you took that argument that uh, that baby is not alive yet until it starts breathing and therefore it's okay to terminate it? Uh, we wouldn't believe that. So again, sometimes people will use anything they can to support their views. People start with what they want to believe is true and then they'll cram that idea into Scripture. And that's the opposite of how we're supposed to handle the Word of God. So our first point there is God formed Adam and gave him life. We're going to move ahead here, 8 through 15, and we're going to see here that God planted a garden in Eden and put Adam there to live and to work. Let's read verses 8 through 15. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God uh, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivalah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, we'll stop there. So we see the Lord God, he's forming this garden and then he's putting Adam there uh, in this place after God himself, you know, creating this ideal um, environment for him. So, It says here, uh, well, verse 8, I'm not into gardening. It's not my thing. I guess I can't make fun of it because it's saying here that God is a gardener. Okay? So I guess you have some ammo here. You know, if you're into gardening and you, you know, it's spring, you're wanting to do that, say, well, you know, God, God's a gardener too. So I guess I can't argue with that. So it says this is what God is doing. Uh, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. We're going to see here that the garden is in Eden. Sometimes we talk about the Garden of Eden, uh, but it seems that Eden was actually like a larger area and part of it was the garden. Now, don't just think of like your mom's vegetable garden or something, this little rectangle in the backyard. Uh, Think of more like a big expansive like English garden. I'm reading a biography on John Adams and it's talking about when they're in England and these gigantic, uh, you know, estates that they would... Uh, plant these, you know, just these gardens and manage the land 
and uh, how some of them were just hundreds of acres. And they would sculpt it, and they would have uh, little rivers and waterfalls, and basically taking just the natural beauty in it and just enhancing it. And I think God gave a start with this in Eden, and that's kind of like what it was like. And then God was telling Adam to take care of this and also to continue this work, to, to cultivate it, and uh, as they populate the, the world, to, to make more of this. But God is the one that got it started. He, he planted the, the original garden, and he, and see, he put Adam there. So Adam was created somewhere else, and then God, I don't know, you know plopped him there, and here you go. I gave him a great place to live. Again, we see everything is good here so far. This is great land. Uh, you, you don't have to worry about no, not having water or will it rain, will it not rain, or you're getting wet with it. It's, and God plants this garden. And then it says, and Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And so in this garden, now he's having, there, there had been other plants as well, but now others in the tree are coming up. So there's ample supply of food for Adam. Uh, this wasn't something he was going to starve to death. It wasn't something he was going to have to uh, just break his back in labor for food. There might have been some that would take cultivation, but there was plenty of food there already, uh, just r- literally ripe for the, for the picking. And then it talks about two different types of trees. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, these are going to come into the story quite a bit, and we're going to see some warning about these uh, kind of later on. But then it gets into this uh, passage. We're talking about Eden. The word Eden, by the way, means delight. It was a delightful thing. It was a, it was a great place to be, this original paradise that they had. But look, you have this section here, verse 10 through 14. I remember originally thinking, well, I'm not going to say a lot about this. What's the point of this? It's a bunch of rivers, and it talks about the land, and uh, it talks about yeah, these four rivers that seem to come from Eden and then split out. And the Pishon, and it talks about um, the Gihon, and then the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now, if you're looking at a map, some people say, well, okay, we have some clues here where Eden is. We wonder where was Eden? And you can look at a map today and you can find the Tigris and the Euphrates, you know, and they flow in the Mesopotamia, kind of that area, and down to where, like, uh, through, like, Iraq. And say, well, that's maybe at the beginning or at the end, people speculate maybe that's where Eden is. Problem is, the rivers don't seem to function the way they do in this passage. That they don't seem to start all together and branch out. And two of the rivers, we have no idea what those rivers actually would be. And so, of course, some people say, well, see the Bible, this is fiction. Uh, You don't have to believe that it makes literal sense um, because, uh, you know, this it doesn't even look this way. But I think even Moses and the origi- you know, at, at their time, they would have realized, um, hey, wait, the rivers that we have, you know, we kind of know about them, but uh, they don't really work like this. I think what we're seeing here is a topography of the land that already in Moses' day was different than what it was originally at the beginning. And I think the explanation for that is, uh, well, we see that something happened to this. And later on in Genesis, we're going to see that uh, the Lord judges the world with the flood that happens at the time of Noah. And this was not a little tiny flood. Uh, this was a big cataclysmic thing. And I don't know, sometimes you see pictures that we see of like a hurricane that comes through an area, and you see the before and after. 
And sometimes it just completely changes the landscape. And there's sometimes where these natural events that we see, uh, it shows that the river used to be here and now the river is over there because things have changed. And so with the scale of the flood that happened, this gigantic worldwide cataclysm, and also there was uh, geographic things that happened with this too. The only way to really make it work out where all this water came from and how it worked is that the mountains and everything that we have today were, were not the same as they were back then. That there was upheavals in the earth, both with the water springing forth, uh, but then also as it settles back into place. And so I think a lot of uh, the landscape was different then as it is now. Um, maybe some of you are fans of Lord of the Rings. I might be talking to a select group of people here, but uh, this summer I read through the Cimmerillion, which is uh, part of the Lord of the Rings series, but it happens like uh, thousands of years before the stuff with uh, you know, Frodo and all of them. And I'm trying to read this and I'm looking at the maps in the back of this book and I'm trying to put things in place, like, okay, where's the Shire and where's the, you know, the stuff that I know? And it, it doesn't make sense, and I'm just trying to figure this out. But you get to the end of the account, and there's a big disaster, and basically half of the continent falls into the sea and talks about rivers being changed. And I realize, oh, okay, that's... Uh, Tolkien is saying that even, you know, his world of Middle Earth here, something had happened to it, and there was a before time, and things have been changed since then. I think he's alluding to something that is similar to scripture that we see, that there was a before time where things were different. And so at first I thought, well, what's the point? I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this because, <laughs> but also being kind of, why does it go in all these details about, you know, the land was gold, there was gold in the land and uh, delium and onyx stone. Like, what's the point? Why is... God having Moses write this down if it's for a land that doesn't exist. Then it hit me, that's the point. It's a hint to us that the world as it is now is not like it once was. There was a time before. There was a time there was an original goodness in this world that has been lost. Something has been changed. Something is different. And so we see the effects that sin has had on this world. And so I think that these rivers are a hint to us that the world is no longer the way that it was before in this time that has passed. The main point also is that, hey, the land was, it was well watered, you had these rivers, it was fertile, it was, it was good, the original goodness of this creation. And in verse 15, it says, Adam was put to work the garden. Again, we see that work is not an evil thing. So many people are trying to get away from work. There were protests in France because they wanted to uh, slightly raise uh, the retirement age. Uh, I think from 62 to, I don't remember, it, they were able to retire earlier than we can. And people are flipping out about that because they want their life of not working in ease. Now there's a place for retirement. And so if you're retired, we get that. But I also hope in your retirement, it's not just I'm checked out of doing anything productive. You're freed up. You have other ways that you can be contributing, pouring into people's lives and, and serving. Uh, and God has wired us in that way. It's not all about the paycheck. 
Uh, but it's about what, what can we do to make a difference in this world, to, to care for this world, to develop it, and especially the other people in this world that God wants us to be making a difference in their lives. So Adam, he's put in the garden to improve it, to take care of it. Work is a good thing. Then finally, we see in the section that verse 16 and 17 that God commanded Adam how he might have continuous life. Let me read these last verses we'll look at today. So God took the man, he put him in the garden to work it, and then there's instructions. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, this is going to come up as we get into chapter 3. But I think there's some things we want to think about. And first, before we even get to uh, the command about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think that's the wrong place to start with this. Because we want to first look at uh, what God says to him beforehand. He doesn't start with what he prohibits. He starts with what he permits and God is telling him, yeah, he's going to tell him there's one tree that you're not free to eat from, but he has given him a vast array of other options. God has given him, uh, provided Adam with this vast array of excellent choices, good choices, fulfilling choices that Adam could pick from. God had planted all these trees there with so much uh, that he could eat from and just a wide variety and I think we need to remember and focus on first, like I said, not just on what God prohibits, but to realize that actually what he permits us to have and the freedom of choices and options that he gives us is actually much larger than the things that he says no to. And sometimes we focus on the things that God says, don't do this or you're not allowed to do this. And we start to think to ourselves, well, God is really restrictive. He's not letting me have my fun. He's not letting me do what I want to do instead of looking at all of the good things that he has for us that we are free to choose from, that we're allowed to, that God has put there uh, for our sustenance, for our delight. And we're not just talking about food here. There's so many different things in our lives that God gives us as legitimate good things. But what do we tend to do? We tend to focus on the one thing that we're not supposed to do and obsess about that. It's like if you're a parent, you're taking the kid, your kid is shopping, and you're at the grocery store and you're in the checkout aisle, and let's say you decide this time that you're going to just be nice and the kid's looking at all these candy bars that are there, which are put there to entice, and you tell your child, you can have, I'll buy you a candy bar. You can pick any of these candy bars, but don't, don't pick this one. Of course, just human nature, what do we do? Like, well, wait a second, there's all of these and they're great, but you said not to pick this one. So I was well, that's the one I want. Because now our attention is on that and what is the reason why I can't have this one? Are you holding out on me, mom or dad? Come on. Why can't I? Are you keeping the good stuff back from me? But you know, if that's our attitude, that really shows what we think of God and our level of trust with him. 
Think about it. If a kid was to think that, to immediately go to, Mom or Dad, you're holding out on me. You don't want me to have the best one. It's showing they think that Mom or Dad is, is not that good. If you had a trusting child that understands you and, and knows, they would probably realize, even if you don't explain it, there's probably some reason I shouldn't pick that one. Like, maybe it's that you, you won't like that one. It's a, a, a mounds bar? Why do you want a mounds bar? You know, my apologies to the one person that likes mounds bars. I know there's got to be someone that keeps them in existence. You know, but it could be that. Just like, no, you're, not, you're really not going to like that. You think you will, you're going to be disappointed. Or maybe, you know, the parent knows, yeah, there's something really bad about that bar. You don't want to pick uh, uh, bunches of poison, okay? Uh, there's something particularly wrong with this one. Isn't that the way it is with God? When he's telling us, okay, don't do this. If we trust him, the God that has designed this world, he's designed us, he knows what is best for you. That even if he doesn't explain the reason that he says, don't pick this one, he knows it's bad for us. Sin is always bad for us. It's destructive. It's destructive of our relationship with him. It's destructive of ourselves internally. It's not how we're designed to live. And it's not going to give you the satisfaction that you think it's going to deliver. Maybe it will for just a moment. Sin can be fun for a season, but long term, no, it's not going to. Do we trust God enough to realize that when he tells us you have all these options, to instead of focusing on, well, you told me I can't have this one, you're holding out, to say, God, thank you for providing so many good options. I'm going to pick this one. And I trust you, and I trust that you're not just withholding. You're not a God that is doing bad to me by keeping me from the, the really good thing. But that's what's going to happen with Satan. He's going to work in Eve and he's going to work in Adam. And, you know, God, is he really that good? Or is he holding back from you? Is he holding back the good stuff that he doesn't want you to have it? And who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the devil? Are we going to believe that sinful part of us that wants to rebel and do our own thing? Or are we going to trust the good Lord God who made us and who designed us and designed this world for us? God has given us a vast array of choices. And one of those was the tree of life. Adam, when he was created, when we look at all of Scripture, he was created not to die. But that doesn't mean that he was... Um, immortal in and of himself. I think how it worked is just as long as he was eating from the tree of life, God would sustain his life. We're going to see that sin is going to bring death for Adam, but it also brings death for all of us, that we all die because of Adam's sin. That's why the world is like it is. But originally, Adam's life, I think, was created to be ongoing. And so if he believed God and if he obeyed God's command, God's command to Adam would preserve Adam's life if he obeyed. And that's what God wanted for him. He wanted to have this, this ongoing life and not have what was going to come from sin and disobedience. But this means he had to listen to God. You know, we think of obey, we think of it as such a nasty thing, but uh, it's trusting that God is good and he knows what he's talking about. And not deciding, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to be my own authority. I'm going to be my own judge. I'm going to determine things for myself. That's what would get him into trouble. That's what would cause the separation. 
God gives commands because they're good for you. And he knows that sin kills. Sin is destructive. It always is. You know, when we talk to, when we think about that for ourselves, when we talk to other people, God is not giving arbitrary rules uh, just to be a killjoy, okay? And it's not just to see, well, will you obey the, this random thing I picked? God is keeping us from things that are, that are destructive. And we see here, after God talks about all of the good options, he says, yeah, but there's one. Don't eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll talk about this more as we see coming up. But disobedience would bring death. I think ultimately it's not the fruit of this tree, whatever it is, that was poison that caused this. It was the act of disobeying God. That's what would bring death to them. Because Adam and we're going to see Eve are created in this perfect harmony. But disobedience separates us. It, it breaks that harmony between man and God. That original unity that was there. And rebellion against God can only bring separation from him. You can't disconnect from the source of life and expect to live. That would be like a deep sea diver thinking, well, I can, I can disconnect from my oxygen and I'll be fine. When we disconnect ourselves from God, it can only bring death. So we see in this whole section here, we see that Adam, he was created from dirt. He was created to work the dirt, but he actually wasn't created to return to the dirt. That wouldn't happen unless he chose to disregard God. But in this, we see that in the beginning, all was good in the world. This original goodness. But again, as we look at this, we recognize this is not the world we find ourselves in now. Something has happened since. We don't live in this perfect world, but we have a longing for it. We have a longing for this goodness, this wholeness, but it is no more. But Jesus came so that there could be wholeness again. He came to fix the damage that sin brought into this world. What sin fractured in this world, in our relationships, and especially us and him, and even death. The fracturing of the two parts of you. Jesus came to fix that. And if you trust Jesus Christ, the Son of God is your Lord and Savior. That begins now. That your broken relationship with God is made whole, is fused back together again. And then God will continue to work to help other things in your life to be made whole again. It won't be finished in this life. We're not going to live in a perfect life until Jesus does return and brings things not only to back to the original goodness, but an even greater and better goodness. Because not only will we know God as a great creator, but you will know him as a great savior. One that loved you enough to came and to seek and save sinners like you and me, and to give his grace, and to love you enough that despite your sin and despite your rebelliousness, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save a rebel like me and you. Won't you please turn to him? Won't you please put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior so he can begin that work of making you whole again? The world was good at first. Though technically it was not all good. There was something missing. Woman. We'll see that next week. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a good creator. You are good. You do good. 
And Lord, the brokenness we find in this world is not how you originally created it. And Lord, we acknowledge that. We confess you as good and we confess that it is our sin of humanity, uh, Adam's sin and our sin as well too that contribute to everything being fractured. But Lord, we thank you that Jesus came to make things whole again. That he died on the cross to take the place of sinners. Anyone that will trust in him as Savior can be saved and made whole not because of our effort, but because of Jesus. And Lord, we long for the day to come when Jesus returns, when death is defeated, when bodies are raised, when evil is vanquished, Lord, and everything is made good and whole again, and when there's genuine peace and wholeness on this earth. We long for that. We long for you. In Jesus' name, we hope and pray. Amen.